Good singing. You may be seated. Well, good singing indeed, and good morning to you on this cold Sunday morning. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Exodus chapter 17. Last year when it got down to sub-zero temperatures, or right at zeros with wind chill, we boiled a pot of water, walked out on the front porch, and just threw it and made our own snow. Sounds like we might be able to do that tonight. I don't know, but uh, hang in there for you people that don't like the cold, which is probably most of us, by the way. I don't know any person that says, man, sign me up for bone-chilling freeze. Uh, But uh, we'll make it through six to eight more weeks. We'll be back into the spring, and the winter will be just a distant past. It is only our present for right now. Exodus chapter 17 is where we are. We're going forward in our series of walking. Last year in November, we put a pause at Moses, and now we come to Joshua. So we're in our series of walking, and we come to our first message on Joshua, just four. I would love to preach through the whole book of Joshua, and I've done that in the past, and other men here have done that in the past. That is not the point of these messages. These messages are to look at the man, Joshua to look at his life and to look at who he is. And so uh, we will enjoy very much so this man, Joshua, and he is a man of victory, as we'll see in just a few moments as we get into the message. But let's read Exodus chapter 17 and our first introduction to this man, Joshua, as we go deeper then into the totality of our study or begin our study this morning. The Bible says in Exodus 17 and verse number 8, Then came... Amalek. Boy, that's a good beginning to most sermons, isn't it? How many in here by raise of hand know know the type or the picture that Amalek gives to us? By raise of hand, do you have an idea? All right, Amalek is a type of the flesh, and we're going to get to that in the preaching this morning. But your flesh will always keep coming after you. How many of us Christians would love to say, man, I have beaten my flesh. I'm done. Paul said you got to do it daily. So let's keep reading then. There's a lesson for us in this story then. Then came Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said unto Joshua, Choose us out men and go out. Fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in mine hand. So Joshua did as Moses said unto him, and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And it came to pass, when Moses held up his hand, that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy. And they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat thereon. And Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands, the one on the one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua discomfited Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And the Lord said unto Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book, and notice the next line, and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua. For I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it Jehovah Nisei, which means God or Jehovah is our banner. For he said, because the Lord hath sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation 
to generation. Father, help us now as we come to this man, Joshua. Lord, as we look into the Word of God, may we see who this man is and how his life and choices in that life help us gain victory in our Christian life. His walk with you instructs and inspires us to walk with you as well. Bless us today as we learn of this man and learn more about us, learn more about ourselves and our flesh. Bless I pray in this hour in Jesus' name. Amen. Joshua is one of the wonderful Bible characters, certainly, to study. His life is a life of victory. His life is a picture of Christ. Christ conquering in and through us the enemies that would oppose us in the promised life of faith that Jesus has given to us. Joshua goes about conquering everywhere he goes. Here in the book of Exodus, all the way into the end of the time in the promised land, Joshua is victorious after victorious after victorious in the battles that he is faced with. He leads God's people to victory in battle after battle, just like Jesus will lead us in battle after battle in the Christian life if we will but walk with him. Joshua, like Joseph, has no sins in his life recorded in the Bible. Can you imagine having that said of you? No sins. Now, he was a sinner. I'm not suggesting this morning that Joshua was sinless. What I am saying is no sins are recorded so that we might look to Joshua and gain hope and help because we can look to Jesus just like Israel looked to him. Joshua served as a wonderful type then of Jesus Christ. So in the four messages that we're going to look at in his life, this morning we're going to look at victory over the flesh. That is what is taught here in Exodus 17. How we gain the victory over our own natural flesh. The next message that we come to will be victory through faith. That's Joshua chapters 1 through 7. Then we will look at victories beyond failure. When we see the story of Achan, we realize that Joshua is part of that story. And as he takes that Babylonian garment from Jericho and he hides it in his tent with that gold and that silver, they lose the battle at Ai. And the question for us in the Christian life is, how do you get back up and win after you failed? Joshua shows us that. He shows us the steps that are necessary for us to engage in a victorious Christian life. The fourth message and final one will be this, victory into the future. So let's meet Joshua this morning, and then we will study in our second point our own victory over the fallen flesh that besets each of us. Don't you wish this morning you didn't have to deal with the flesh? You woke up this morning, and guess what you had to deal with? The flesh. When you look in the mirror, the guy or the gal that you hate in the mirror is not the spiritual one that will live forever. It's your natural one that works against God. And this is the story of Joshua. So we begin this morning with a man of victory, Joshua himself. He enters the Bible here in Exodus 17 on the battlefield. He's ready to fight. He's ready to do the work of God in the sphere of God that God has provided for him. In the area and space, the content and context of his life, he's willing to do what is necessary to win for Almighty God. Joshua is a warrior. Joshua is a leader. 
But of all things, Joshua is a victor. He does exactly what he's supposed to do on the battlefield. He does it faithfully. He does it fervently, all while he fights against the most intimate enemy we will ever face, our flesh. The Amalekites, like a cockroach, just kept coming back to bother the Israelites. Joshua's victory is also more meaningful than just reading it here in Exodus chapter 17. As Moses gives his farewell address, in the giving of that second law in Deuteronomy, he says this of these very Amalekites in this very incident. It gives even more context to what we read this morning. Here's what Moses says in Deuteronomy 25 in verse 17. Remember what Amalek did unto thee, by the way. In other words, he wants us to recall those that attack us, those that hurt us, those that seek to kill us or to destroy our walk with him. He says, when ye were come forth out of Egypt, how he met thee, by the way, and smote the hindmost of thee, even all that were, what? Feeble behind thee. Oh, our flesh knows where our weaknesses are. Oh, our flesh knows exactly how to get us. It knows exactly what our Achilles heel is, and it snips at it day by day, so that we might be tripped up and hampered in our walk with God. He says, when thou was faint and weary, he, Amalek, your flesh, it doesn't respect God, feared not God. Amalek attacked Israel's weakness. The attacks were against her weakest and feeblest of the people. Stop for just a moment and think in your own life of what your weakest area of faith is. That, that is what your flesh will go after. That is what your flesh will attack because internally your flesh knows it's in a battle. The day that you got saved, the day that the grace of God became a reality when your faith was placed in Jesus Christ, the war began and you need to realize that this morning. Joshua explodes on the scene here in Exodus 17, ready to do battle, ready to fight, ready to do what was necessary. Amalek attacked Israel. The attacks were against the weakest. God had rescued his people. The salvation was in the Passover. He had separated his people. The baptism was in the Red Sea. Now they've come to the desert, exposed and easy targets. By the way, if you stay away from God's presence and God's people, you too will become an easy, exposed target. Yet we find in the story that God always makes provision for us to succeed. Our flesh will come after us. Our flesh will find our vulnerable weaknesses, but you can have the victory. Joshua's victory marks him on the battlefield as a man of victory. Yes, Moses lifts up his hands. Yes, God is the one who produces the victory. But it is Joshua who's down on the battlefield fighting for us. That, by the way, is the wonderful truth of Joshua being like Jesus. Jesus wants to enter into your life day by day and get down on the battlefield of life and fight right alongside you. He wants to take his presence in you into the battlefield of your life. Amen. That's why Joshua is so valuable and his story is so Wonderful for us to understand this morning. To be victorious in our Christian life, then, we must understand letter A, Joshua's willingness to fight. Oh, he was ready. We see no hesitation. 
we see no deliberation. We see a man who is obedient and active. Verse number 9 says, Moses said unto Joshua, Choose us out men and go out. Fight with Amalek. This is the real question, isn't it, for our Christian life? Are you willing to fight your flesh? We live in a day where Christians rarely are willing to say yes to that. Sin speaks to our flesh, friend. The Bible tells us of sin that it is pleasurable for a season. What does that tell you? It tells you that your flesh likes it. Your flesh loves sin. And your flesh will try to convince you that it's okay to engage in this activity or this behavior. Sin feeds our flesh. Satan and his demons know where our flesh is the weakest. And they will come with a full assault on our hindermost part, as the Bible says here in Exodus 17. The question then for us is, will we be like Joshua and sign up being willing and ready to fight against our flesh. The really, that is the biggest issue that I have with modern Christianity. We don't fight the flesh. We're told that Jesus is okay with you living in your flesh. Can I suggest to you, there's nothing found in the pages of scriptures that makes that true. Jesus came to die for sin so that you would not live any longer therein. Why would God be okay with you engaging in acts of the fleshly lust? And the answer is he's not. Instead of fighting the flesh in modern Christianity, we are loose with our emotions and our feelings. They're hurt all the time. We are lax in our thinking, meaning we do not guard our mind and what enters into our mind, and we are lazy in our actions and deeds. We simply do not fight. Paul had an admonition to his son in the faith, Timothy. He wrote these words beginning in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Joshua would understand what those words meant. Joshua would understand the truth of them. Paul goes on to explain in context a little bit more for Timothy that help us understand the fight that Joshua had is actually our fight still today. He says, lay hold on eternal life. In other words, engage in eternal life because you have it now. You don't have to wait till heaven to enjoy eternal life. You have it right now. So long as you don't live in the flesh. He says, whereunto thou art also called and has professed a good profession before many witnesses. I give thee charge in the sight of God who quickeneth or makes alive all things and before Christ Jesus. And now he gives an aside about Jesus who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession. In other words, he did not succumb to his flesh. Jesus was victorious on his own battlefield like Joshua was victorious on his battlefield. And you can be victorious if you will but fight. He goes on to say that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, under the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his time he shall show, who is blessed and holy potentate, the King of kings, Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see. Notice he says, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. It seems that Paul goes into a full out prayer for Timothy. We're going to see how that comes into play in just a few moments in this very story. Paul's admonition then to Timothy was to fight. 
By the way, the admonition was likely in the city of Ephesus where Timothy was pastoring. Do you know Ephesus was a rich, wealthy, affluent church with members who were getting lazy and their pastor Timothy was getting weary in warning them about their flesh. Nothing has changed in 2,000 years. Sometimes I'm sure you sit in the pew and you say, is he really talking about this again? And the answer is, yes, I have to talk about it every Sunday because I struggle with my flesh every Sunday. Some of you think, well, if you just get victory over it, you preach better messages. You struggle with your flesh, too, from Sunday to Sunday. It's why they're necessary. It's why we have to engage in the fight that is a good fight of faith. Joshua is tasked with fighting the Amalekites, just as we are tasked with fighting our flesh on a daily basis. You cannot have victory if you're not willing to fight. The will to fight is the beginning. But next we find that Joshua was faithful. In verse number 10, the Bible says, So Joshua did as Moses commanded. That's faith. And to do something in faith over and over and over and over again is the very definition of faithfulness or to be faithful. Consider this battle, his faithfulness beyond this battle, I should say, his faithfulness in the walls of Jericho. Would you have really marched seven times around the walls without saying a word? But day after day, he was faithful. I want to focus here on the text itself. Think of this battle. What did Joshua know when he went out to discomfort Amalek? He only knew this. Joshua, pick out the guys you want to go to battle with and go fight. I'm going up on the hill with the rod and I will stand before Almighty God. That's all he knew as to do the battle. Sometimes, by the way, in faithfulness, we want pastor to spell out everything that I'm supposed to do next. Can I tell you, that is physically and humanly impossible. Faithfulness is not dependent upon me. It's not dependent upon the church being true to the word of God. Your faithfulness is not dependent upon your spouse knowing the Bible or your children walking with God or your parents loving God. Your faithfulness is dependent upon your choices that you make. Are you going to trust God? Joshua says, hey, I don't know what you're going up on the hill to do, but I know what I'm going out on the battlefield to do, and that's win. I'm willing to fight, and I'm willing to do it day after day. Literally, if you think of it on the battlefield, person after person of the Amalekites that he slays, next one, next one, next one. That's faithfulness. And the problem in our Christian life is we don't want to go line upon line. We don't want to go precept upon precept. We don't want to look into the mirror of the word of God and examine just the areas where we are weakest and see how we can do better at it. What the Bible says we ought to do about them. There is every reason for him to doubt on that battlefield. As the battle was raging, there would be times of success. And according to this very passage, there would be times of setback. Is that not true in our own Christian life? Man, this was a great week. I really served the Lord well this week. And the next week comes and you're like, what happened? Sometimes it feels like in the Christian life, it's what? Two steps forward? You fill in the rest. Some of you said one. Some of you said four steps back. I don't know how many steps back. But the point is, that's the Christian life. 
It ought to be a slow progression forward in the faithfulness. If we're willing to fight, we ought to be willing to be faithful in that fight. Oh, uncertainty is sure to come. And I have no doubt that down on the battlefield, there were times where Joshua was probably thinking, what is going on? Yet he stayed faithful in the task. I wish it was true that we would never again lose to our flesh. But I can't promise you that this morning. Certainly I can pray that for you. And I hope you would pray that for me. But it's just not the case. To be faithful is to be reliable, to be steadfast, to be unwavering. The best verse in all of the Bible that speaks to this is in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 58. This verse comes at the end of Paul teaching the Corinthians about God's victory over death and that the grave has no more victory, death no longer has sting, and that because Christ is risen, we have hope in Him. Here's what he says. Here's how faithfulness plays out. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always Abounding. You could read that to say always victorious in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. There wasn't one aggressive action. There was not one positive move on the battlefield that was not yielded as fruit for Joshua against the Amalekites. No matter what setbacks came, he was making progress because he was faithful to the God who had called him. Victory came for Joshua because first he fought. Second, because he was faithful. But finally, Joshua was fervent. The Bible says at the end of verse 10, and fought with Amalek. You could read that to say, and Joshua fought with Amalek. To be fervent about something means to be passionately intense. Of course, this isn't the only time that we find Joshua fervent in his efforts. He was going to see it through to the end. He believed in what he was doing. Here it says he discomfited Amalek. We find him in a few chapters later on Mount Sinai with Moses. And as they descend with the tablets of the law, they notice that the camp is in an uproar. The uproar is not about a victory in battle. It's not about defeat in battle. It's a strange sound coming from the camp and it seems to be an unholy situation. And Joshua's the first to comment on it. He said, it sounds like war's going on, but we're not in battle. Here's our victor again. Of course, Moses is the one that openly responds to their defiance and their idolatry. We find his fervency as he demonstrates again, this man Joshua, his trust in God as a spy. He alone with Caleb gave a good report about the promised land. Man, that took guts. It took passion and conviction that God is a good God because the other ten and it seems the rest of the tribes wanted nothing to do with entering into the promised land because, buddy, there was giants and walled cities and nothing but problems in that land. And by the way, a lot of Christians will listen to their flesh and say, I don't want to live the Christian life because there's a lot of things I got to overcome. There's a lot of strongholds that I have to pull down. There's a lot of difficulties that I'm going to have to endure. And the answer is, it's worth the fight. Amen. I promise. Oh, what Joshua teaches us. Oh, the believers would be passionate about living the promised life. The life of faith. It is far better than a life lived like the world in our old sinful flesh. 
There's an interesting verse that's dropped in the middle of Romans chapter 12. Romans 12 is a passage that tells us how we ought to be serving as saints of God. He's told us at the beginning of Romans 12 about the spiritual gifts. If you come on Wednesday night here in about 10 or 11 weeks, we'll be in Romans 12 and you can come and hear the whole message on that. But simply to say, he tells us that we are to be not conformed to this world, but be transformed in verses 1 and 2. The next verses in Romans 12 talk about how we are gifted within the church and we ought to be serving within the church. And then in verse number 8 and 9, he begins to pivot away and he starts talking about what your service actually looks like. He talks about things like this, that we have to show brotherly love one to another. We have to be kind and loving, that we have to abhor or hate that which is evil and love or cleave to that which is good. But here's what he says in verse 11 as it applies to this concept of fervency. He says this, not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Now, A lot of times, leave that verse up there for a second, Cody. A lot of times we read the beginning of that verse and we think, yeah, you know what? I should be the best employee that I can possibly be. Can I suggest to you, that's an acceptable application of that, but that's not the content or context of that verse. He's talking about serving within the church. The word slothful means lazy idleness. The word business, as it is translated, would be eager diligence. In other words, he says, do not have lazy idleness to the eager diligence that should be part of your serving God. And the next phrase he says is fervent in spirit. That means passionate in your thinking. How serious are you about living the Christian life? Do you care? Well, I mean... I'm not going to care if my spouse doesn't care. By the way, there's a great principle of iron sharpening iron. When two spouses come together in a marriage and say, we both want to serve the Lord, but we don't know how. If you will just come with that fervent spirit, you'll be able to serve the Lord. The Spirit of God will enable you and start coming into your life and helping you find the areas that need to be taken away, the things that need to be added to. Joshua was fervent. God wants diligent, fervent Servants, we might say. He doesn't want idle, lazy, lax people serving him. And nor does he want those people claiming to serve him. In the book of Revelation, he said, I would that you were cold or hot, but you're lukewarm. And what does he say to the Laodicean church? I'm spitting. It makes me sick. He literally says he wants to spew you, vomit you out of his mouth. That is a gross thought. But it's an accurate Bible thought. Idle, lax, lazy Christians are not victorious. They're vomitous. From this man of victory, then, we go to the making of victory. So how am I going to be victorious? What should I learn? Joshua, after all, is a man of victory. But I would encourage you, you can be as well. God has, after all, called us to victory over our flesh. Just as Joshua fought and defeated the Amalekites, so too we can fight and defeat our flesh day after day. There are three essentials that we draw from our passage in Exodus chapter 17 for making your fight a victorious fight. It begins, letter A, with the success of prayer. When was the last time you prayed that you would have victory over a fleshly problem? When was the last time you got serious about your sinfulness and wanting to get that out of your life? 
Or are you just fine with little bits of your Christian life being picked off from behind? Your testimony, your character, your effectiveness and your usefulness. That's what your flesh does. It ruins your testimony because it steals your purity. It steals your power. In verse number 9... The only words that Joshua was told, other than go find some fighting men that are going to get engaged in this battle and go down and fight. The only thing he's told by Moses is this. Tomorrow, I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. That's all Joshua knows. The secret here, the success here is found in the prayer that we find here. When Moses would go up into the presence of Almighty God, it is a picture of you and I going up into the presence of God in prayer. He's going up on that mountainside to pray. This battle against Amalek was the Lord's. So long as Moses lifted up his hands to God, they were triumphant. Aaron and her spiritual supporters helped steady and stay Moses' hands. I found this picture. It's a wonderful artist rendering of what it looked like probably on that day. It's not as if Moses climbed Mount Everest, okay? He didn't go up 28,000 feet where, I can't see him up there. The whole time that Joshua was on the battlefield, he could look up and see that there was prayer being offered for him and for those that were fighting. If you look at the picture, the artist decided there's little dots down in the valley to the left, apparently of hers leg. That's Joshua on the battlefield. That's you and I on the battlefield. I believe Joshua could see Moses standing before God praying for their success. This served as a constant reminder that the battle is, in fact, the Lord's. David said the very thing, that very thing when he went out in 1 Samuel 17 to fight against Goliath. <laughs> the battle is the Lord's. Why are we worried about this big guy? The bigger they are, the harder they fall, David might have said. Because the battle, the victory, is not yours. In prayer, it becomes the Lord's. Moses in God's presence is a type of our entrance into God's presence in prayer. Having said that, prayer is often overlooked as being important to our spiritual success. Now, let me ask you a question. Other than the three times a day where you pray the old prayer, rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub, when was the last time you were earnest in your prayer? When was the last time that you spent at least five minutes of your day saying to God, today, I want to serve you, not my flesh? I will tell you, friend, if you don't pray that prayer, you will never serve God. You will never find success. The key to success in the spiritual life is not having a great oration or ability to speak freely or a great understanding of the word of God. The key and foundation for success in the Christian life is a life of prayer. First and foremost. So Joshua's victory was just found in the fact that someone was praying. James chapter 5 and verse 16 is a wonderful verse. It says this, Confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. There's a lot of great teaching I could give on the first half of that verse. Simply to say it's good for us to confess our faults and simply to say it's good for us to pray for one another. 
Added to that, then there will be a great process of healing that comes upon our church family, emotionally, spiritually, and yes, even physically. But the end of that verse is the key for today. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man does what? You're clearly excited. I must be preaching right at your flesh this morning. The prayer of a righteous man, the prayer of a righteous woman, accomplishes much. It availeth much. It affects enough change in the person of the prayer that success comes. Amen. The fervency of Joshua to fight, the fervency of Moses, Aaron, and her up on that mountainside to sustain in prayer before God is in us, in our prayer life. How much will you contend with God? How much will you bring before Him? How much will you depend upon Him in prayer? That will measure your success. Joshua, on the field of battle, could look up and see the supplications being made for him. Oh, there's a wonderful truth in this about what our Savior Jesus Christ does. He in heaven is our advocate, making supplications. The Spirit of God who dwells within us also makes intercession and supplication for us. He could look up to Moses and see that someone was praying for him. May I suggest to you, that's exactly how the church is strengthened as well. How we find success amongst ourselves. As we pray one for another Amen. in an intercessory way, that means on the behalf of another. Sometimes in our church, the older and perhaps even some that might be disabled will say to me, Pastor, I don't know what I can really do to help the church. I always say to them, pray. Pray for your fellow church members because that is the foundation of success. I can tell you that as a pastor, I know and realize the prayers of church members daily. There are days as a pastor where I am discouraged. There are times as a pastor where I am frustrated. But I also know in those times that there are countless dozens of people or families in our church who are praying for me. That is important. Is foundational. You say, well, what does it really do? It encourages me. Just like Joshua could look up and see Moses cared enough to keep those hands high, Joshua could get back to the work that he had to do on the battlefield. Moms and dads, don't ever stop praying for your kids. Grandparents, pray for your kids and your grandkids. By the way, children, pray for your parents. Life isn't always easy being a parent. And sometimes the most important prayers are from the kids as opposed to the little snipey comments or the little sarcastic comments or the little questioning comments. Sometimes the best thing is, hey, I prayed for you today. The first essential for victory is prayer. The second is found in the strength drawn from the rod. Oh, that rod of Moses. Verse 11 says, when Moses held up his hand, that Israel prevailed, and when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. That seems an odd statement. This is like the weirdest battle plan I've ever heard. Win, lose, win, lose. I mean, win, that's what we want. It was the standard, it was the rod, it was the strength. 
By the way, this rod had been used just prior to this as they departed out of Egypt and came to the Red Sea. It was the rod of Moses that was lifted up and the seas parted. And when they got to the other side, it was the rod of Moses that was lifted up and the seas came back together. It was this rod that showed to them the standard and strength that came from God's very word. Where do you draw your strength from? Moses' rod represents for us the Word of God. It is our standard. It is our strength. When God's Word is elevated in your life, then you will have victory over your flesh. When God's Word is not elevated, then your flesh will have victory over you. Three spiritual leaders here are ensuring that the rod is lifted up. When Moses' strength failed, others were there to steady and strengthen him. What a wonderful picture of the New Testament church. As a pastor, I get up here Sunday after Sunday trying to take this book and to give you what is necessary. Acts 20 and verse 28 tells me, the Apostle Paul tells the elders at Ephesus, that they are to feed the church of God. My responsibility every single Sunday is to stand up and hold this book up, the Word of God, as your strength. It is not our ministries. It is not the men and women of this place. It is not the music program of this that makes bluegrass great. It is this book... And the strength we derive from it that helps us go forward and do anything for him. Same is true in your personal life. Only the Bible gives you strength. Only God's word is what you should look to and elevate so that you can have victory over your flesh. Never underestimate the Bible's power. Never devalue its importance in your life. You should always resort to it for your daily strength. Peter, in his second letter, wrote this in introduction to the people that would be reading his letter. He said this in 2 Peter 1 and verse 2, Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him. Now, that's twice that he's used the word knowledge or knowing God. The only way you know God is through this book. Through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby, he says, are given unto us, those who are followers of Christ, those that have committed to walking with God, given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. Where do you find the promises of God? In your experiences? No. You don't know if that's a promise or a a mistake. But when you read the word of God and you see God working, boy, you get strength. You say, man, I can trust him. He's a good God. Every time that Joshua looked up, he could see, oh, man, his arms are getting weak. His arms are getting weak. Come on, Aaron. Come on, her. Get those arms back up there. Come back to the word of God. The rod was their strength. He finishes Peter by saying that by these Ye might be, by what? By the precious promises. Ye might be partakers of the divine nature. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world through what? Lust. That's the lust of your flesh. Only the word of God gives you the strength and enablement to make sure you know how to say no to your flesh. Prayer is key for success. A rod or the word of God is our strength. And finally, we find the sword of the Spirit. 
In verse number 13, the Bible says this, Joshua discomfited Amalek. You know, that word discomfited is great. It means he killed them, right? He made them uncomfortable. Can I tell you, if you get stabbed with a sword, you're quite uncomfortable. I've never been stabbed with one, but I don't want to try to be stabbed with one. But, but I can tell you, if you're stabbed with a sword, you're not like, hey, that feels great. No, your first thought is, ow! Your flesh hates the sword of the Word of God. And the Spirit of God knows how to wield the sword in your life. You see, in the Old Testament, all they could do was fight and pray Fight and pray. But in the New Testament, we have the Holy Spirit of God who indwells us so that as we fight and we pray, we get the victory. Here, Joshua discomfits Amalek with the edge of the sword. Joshua used his sword. Jesus, when he walked this earth, used Scripture, the spiritual sword that we are given. When Jesus' flesh was tempted by the devil, his answers were always what? It is written. Now, if you were Jesus, or if I were Jesus, we would probably look at the devil and go, I am God. But Jesus was giving us an example in Matthew chapter 4. He was saying, I can say or claim that I am God. That was true. But I would rather use the sword to discomfort, discomfort my flesh. It is written, it is written, it is written. Three times he answers. The offensive weapon that you and I have against our flesh is the Word of God in the workings of the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit, using the Holy Scripture, is what actually sets our flesh to flight. The fight against our flesh only ends, my friend, if you kill it. And the only way you can kill it is with the Spirit using the sword of the Word of God. Romans chapter 8 and verse 12, the Bible says, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify, that word mortify means kill off. Do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall what? Live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. When Joshua on that battlefield began to discomfort Amalek, he used the edge of his sword. The Spirit of God will do the same thing in your life if you allow him. Prayer for success, looking to the Word of God as our only source of strength, then allows the Spirit of God to work in our life. Victory is to allow, then, the Holy Spirit in your thinking and feeling take the Word of God, then destroy, eliminate, and kill the lust of the flesh that crop up in your life or in your thinking. Here's what that looks like in actuality. Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13. For the Word of God is quick, means it's alive, and is powerful, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. I read that very carefully to understand the writer is saying from how we feel and how we think. That's what the Bible does. There's a lot of things that our spiritual man and our spiritual mind knows to be true. And the Word of God cuts down to where our feelings are and says, don't trust your feelings. Trust me. Trust this. Trust the book. It's your strength, and I will wield it effectively in your life. He said, and of the joints and marrows, and that Word of God is a discerner 
of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. By the way, we sometimes read that verse 13 and think, well, that means things out there. No, it means you in here. But all things are exposed, naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Let the Spirit of God use the sword of the Lord, the Word of God, to cut away your flesh. Oh, there's going to be a lot of days where you, ah, that hurts. I just lost my leg. Ah, my arm. Oh, I just wanted that thing so bad. Oh, I have to give up that television show. I can't believe I can't watch that movie. I can't believe I can't talk to that friend. I can't believe I have to have this relationship. Cut, 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 cut. Joshua on the battlefield was not down there going, Hey guys, how you doing? Hope you guys go away. Do you think he was? I mean, he would have died like that. Paul said in Romans 8, if you live after the flesh, you'll die. Christian, why are you living after the flesh? What benefit is there in this? Why did you trust Christ in the first place? Oh, listen, your flesh will squeal like a stuck pig every single time the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and sticks you. But may I suggest to you, spiritually speaking, that's a good thing? I heard a pastor one time say, when it comes to God sticking us with his sword, we squeal like a pig. It's time for us to love bacon. You got to get serious. It's time to get serious about your Christian walk with him. We must take God's word and through the Spirit's help expose our flesh. And in the process, discomfort it with the edge of the sword of the word of God. Let the Bible divide asunder how we think and feel, the soul and the spirit. Let the prayers of success and God's strength in his word do to the battle or bring to the battle what is necessary so that the spirit using that sword can be effective. Closing application then this morning. Joshua 1. Amalek was put to flight. In the closing application, I must at least note this. Sadly for Israel, they kept coming back. From Joshua's initial fight in Exodus chapter 17, an ongoing battle with Amalek can be traced throughout all of Israel's history down to Queen Esther. There's a great spiritual truth that we ought to realize from the Amalekites, and that is this. Fighting your flesh is going to be a perpetual problem, but it's worth the fight. Moses warned them here at the end of chapter 17 and verse 16 that the Lord has sworn that the Lord will have war or be at odds, be opposed to with Amalek from generation to generation. In Deuteronomy 25 and verse 19, Moses gave an even greater instruction for Israel to utterly destroy them once they were at peace in the promised land. By the way, as a Christian in your promised life, you should be seeking to utterly destroy every bastion of flesh in your life. When Israel under Joshua entered the promised land, the Amalekites 
joined forces with the Canaanites and attacked them again in Numbers 14 and verse 45. Twice during the judges, the Amalekites banded with the Moabites and the Midianites to wage war against Israel. 400 years after Joshua's first fight with Amalek, the last of the judges, Samuel, gives an order to the newly minted king, King Saul, go and do what Moses says in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Saul disobeys. His disobedience and not destroying the flesh or Amalek as God had commanded him to do created three disasters for Israel. One, Saul was removed for king. Two, Saul would be slain, interestingly, according to 2 Samuel 1 and verse 8, by an Amalekite. Flesh will always come back to kill you if you don't kill it. Word of warning. The third disaster is 600 years later, the Jews would nearly be annihilated by a man named Haman, who the Bible introduces as an Agagite, a descendant of King Agag in 1 Samuel 15, the king of the Amalekites that Saul did not destroy. Here's the point in simplicity for us this morning. I put it at the end of your notes. Your flesh will never let up. To have victory over your flesh, you must fervently and faithfully fight as Joshua did on that battlefield. And that fight on that battlefield involves prayer for success and God's word for strength to unleash the Holy Spirit's power. So friend, you can be victorious over your fallen flesh, but it all starts with you getting into the fight. Father, help us, I pray this morning.